It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Make the Dough Rise. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Brian Doe, certified financial planner at Living Worth Wealth Advisors, serving you in the Lake Country and beyond, based in Greensboro, Georgia. Find us online at livingworth.com. Happy New Year to everybody. And Mr. Brian, Happy New Year to you as well. Yeah. Uh, Happy New Year. I hope everything's going great. Uh, we had a, a good little uh, vacation time. Hope, hopefully you did too. Yeah, did did as well. I I think we both did some like cross country travel. It sounded like you were you were going one direction out to Salt Lake, and I was going from Colorado to New Jersey to visit family, and then and then both crisscrossed paths on the way back. One a little southern route, one a little bit more northern. <laughs> we we should have had a rendezvous in there, but yeah, we we road tripped out west, and I originally was looking at airfare, which is just it's gone crazy. I don't know if it's the fuel cost or the demand because everybody wants to travel after COVID, but. Airfare was going to be so expensive. I was like, I, that's going to kill my budget just to to buy five tickets at a thousand dollars a piece. No kidding. Yeah. So we we and fired the up problems the land they had anyway with oh, it, getting oh, flights to locations and whatnot. Yeah, with everything that happened with Southwest and all the cancellations, I was darn glad to have my own vehicle out there. And, and, and same here. I was hearing horror stories from people. They were saying, "Oh, I can't believe you're driving all the way across the country while they were stuck in the airport for a day." Exactly. Yeah, and a half. I've, I've slipped on enough airport benches to no, I didn't want to do that again. Yes, that is very true. Very true. But yeah, I, we, we made it to the Grand Canyon. That was a first for the girls. I got some great pictures. If nice. you want to go check out my Instagram feed, there's some great, great shots that I got this time. And then we headed up to Southern Utah and was uh, able to find a place to go uh, take the kids and uh, my wife skiing, snow skiing for the first time. So that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, except for Laura getting stranded on the ski lift oh. because. As we made our first trip to the top, the girls were frantically putting their poles down, trying to stand up, but they were putting their poles between each other's skis. And so Laura couldn't get up and get off the bench. And so she started whipping around and making the trip back down. And, you know, fortunately, <laughs> she tripped the little safety wire that cut off the the uh, the chairlift altogether. And I think she let out a few choice words that the the family air atmosphere did not need but everything was fine we were all right that same thing happened to connie earlier this season she was uh I forget what happened, but yeah, she missed the getting off the lift part. And so it started to turn and then they stopped it. And uh, someone had to literally like come up to her, take her boots off and then like reach up and grab her and pull her off of the, off of the seat. Yep. Yeah. That, that's what we, we didn't have to take the boots off, but we, we basically had to lift her off of there. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was funny. It was entertaining. We, we've got, it was all downhill off from the there. lift at this point. So. That is too funny. Well, I got to play a little bit of uh, the role of a policeman in Eastern Ohio during our road trip, and uh, I got to use my old sports play-by-play skills to give play-by-play to the highway patrol in Ohio so that they could track down a dangerous driver. So I'm like following this dangerous driver, giving them every exact detail of like what lane the guy's in, what mile markers we're hitting who he's alongside of, how he's acting, how he's driving, um, and got it all set up so that the police officer at the top of the ramp, I'm communicating with like one highway patrolman who's relating it to then the officer that's actually going to go pull mm-hmm. this guy over and uh, coordinated it all. So like, he's under the overpass. You should see him right now. And then I can hear them on the other say, I got him. And then, you know, see him tear down. It was all in real time. Very, very exciting. <laughs> well, that, that's right up your alley too then. Just it, to, was, it was. Do, 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 do the play by play and let them know what's going on. And- 
And, and you got to be a good citizen on top of it. Connie was like, you should do this for a living. Just drive around and, you know, when it, there's a dangerous driver, you just call in and give the play-by-play to the to the highway patrol. I was like, that'd be kind of a fun, exhilarating job, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, so was this guy like, what, on, on drugs or something? Or That's just... what I'm thinking. Yeah. There were, there were then signs that we saw for the next several miles that said, you know, advertised, call highway, call this number if you see, um, you know, see a, a bad driver or dangerous driving and it said drug enforcement area above it. Mm. So this must be a somewhat regular occurrence to have those. It's pretty sad that it's so there. bad that they have to make yeah. road si- permanent road signs to. Exactly. Yeah. It's not like cattle crossing or deer crossing. It's drug addicted driving. Dr- 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 crazy drug, around. Drug driving, whatever, whatever oh, that is. Golly. Yes. Impair impairments. Yeah, so anyway, that was too bad that that was the case, but we were glad to get somebody who was being very dangerous off the yep. off the streets. So. Well, good, good, good for you, Gold Star, for being a good citizen. We uh, we we did blast bad boys as we drove by, um, just as like a you know little, <laughs> little chef's kiss as we just, just had to have it give it that little extra radio uh, touch. Huh? <laughs> that's right, that's right. It just was too good. It brought a lot of levity to what was a long three day trip back to the West Coast. So it was good stuff. Well, uh, we could catch up about probably lots of other things going on in our lives, Brian, but uh, folks want to hear what's going on in the financial world a little bit as well. And so our first show of the new year, got a couple of things to dive in uh, to, a book that caught your eye that you want to talk a little bit about, and we're going to talk some more about ESG investing. If anybody caught that episode when we talked about it a little bit last year, we're going to go into some more detail and kind of view that through a new lens as well today. Where Mm -hmm. do you want to begin? Well, uh, with all of my drive time, I had the good fortune of being able to take in a number of podcasts and audiobooks and was going to share a, a couple of those that, that I think people should, should check out and, and give a try. One, real quickly, the, the, I'll talk more about the book, but there was a podcast recommended to me by a client called The Bomb, and it was put out by BBC News, and it was an old recap of the development of the atomic bomb, the scientist who had the idea of how fission could could work. And then he was friends with Albert Einstein and used that connection to get access to you know, the U.S. presidents and, and things like that. A lot of things that transpired that very easily could have you know tipped the other way and, and maybe the whole thing never would have been developed if this idea hadn't you know, gotten out oh, wow. or, or, or maybe it would have by, by somebody else. But it was tied into all the geopolitics of the dynamic with the Second World War and then the the post-war, you know, Cold War interaction with Russia and the, the arms race. And you, you get all the intrigue and the espionage. And uh, one of the guys in uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico, and I was driving through New Mexico when I was listening to this, was basically spying and giving all the information to the Soviets. So they they were able to get the the bomb very quickly. And so it, it was just interesting to listen to and read. And you know, a lot of us lived through, you know, either that post-war time period, uh, certainly growing up in the 70s and 80s, everybody was worried about nuclear war. And then with that, you know, with what's happening in Ukraine again today, just seeing how that's continuing to play out. So I highly recommend checking out The Bomb if you want a, a good podcast. Very cool. We'll, uh, we'll link to that in the description of the show today in case people want to find it. Good recommendation. But but the, the one that really intrigued me uh, was a book. And actually, I, I listened to an interview. And you're, anybody that listens to podcasts is probably familiar with, with Joe Rogan's podcast. And you know, may or may not be a fan. But if you are interested, go check out his episode with Peter Zihan, Z-E-I-H-A-N. 
and it's the Joe Rogan Experience, episode 1921. And this was a guy who does consulting work with probably the CIA, Department of Defense, governments, corporations, and he does a lot of speaking and, and uh, has authored a couple of books. But he had the most interesting take on what was happening in Russia, what's happening in China, what is going to happen economically, uh, particularly with like the US, the, the North American region. He had some very great demographic observations. And, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about those, but uh, the name of the book is called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And it's mapping the collapse of globalization. And the, the point that he makes, the argument that he makes is that globalization has really come about over the last, you know, well, since World War II. After World War II, the U.S. was really in a position that they could have imposed almost an imperialist uh, or, or kind of a British empire type control on the rest of the world because we, we were the, the big superpower that came out of that. And we obviously went in instead of trying to rule all these places, we said, you know, do, do your thing. Be, you can be Japanese, you can be German, you can be, you know, wh whatever, but we'll help rebuild. We're going to help uh, police the oceans and, and make transportation safe. We just want you to develop economically and then basically be on our side against Russia in this Cold War that was, that was forming. And so what we have ended up with was the U.S., well, the U.S. is in a very unique position as far as natural resources, and and he maps out a number of resources that a, a country needs to be prosperous. And I, won't, I probably won't get them all here, but if you're energy independent, food, are you able to produce the, the food to feed your population, which you know clearly the U.S. does, probably feeds a lot of the world, transportation, and, and specifically navigable waterways. And then, you know, with us putting in our uh, road and, and interstate infrastructure that you and I both got to see firsthand on our on our trips. Yeah, very true. Which some of it's in great condition and others of it uh, yeah, definitely needs some improvement. Yeah, some, some I felt like the steering was going to shake out of my hands due to the roughness of the roads. So, yeah, yeah it, I, I definitely need some new shocks on the Land Cruiser in a, yeah. in a couple of places. But and then, and then like population and demography. And, and I think there's one or two other, it, maybe natural resources like minerals and, and you know, coal or, or that kind of ties back into that, that energy one that I was talking about. And he says, you, the U S is uniquely positioned in that we, we have all of those in abundance. And so that in spite of all of our politicians attempts to screw things up for as, as long as they have, it, it's sort of this unbreakable entity, uh, when it, when it comes to being able to be you know, prosperous and, and, and wealthy and, and independent and things like that. So then he, he turns his uh, attention to China. And I don't know if you've really thought about this, Walter, but uh, if you've looked at the population growth around the world, I always thought it was like, well, everybody's just having more babies. You know, the, the, the populations are everybody's having more and more babies. And that's why we're getting such huge population growth. Well, the reality is, it wasn't that the population was expanding in the number of young people. It was just everybody was living so much longer. And, and so you ended up with this, what was normally a pyramid shape. Like if you, if you did a distribution of the population, you'd have you know, fewer old people 
And then the, the distribution would widen and widen in, until you had more and more young people. Well, what has happened in a lot of uh, countries is you've had it, it's almost become a vertical distribution. You have as many people in their 50s and 60s as you do 40s, 30s, 20s, and, and below. Well, that's actually inverting in China, in Russia. Uh, to, the U.S. is kind of odd because we have the baby boom and the bust and then their, their kids. Ours is sort of S-shaped. But he says that this population bust is going to devastate China and uh, potentially Russia in, in a cycle that has taken maybe hundreds of years or decades in other countries. It's going to uh, condense and collapse on, on China in the next 10 years. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's a take I hadn't heard. And, and basically the same thing in, in, in Russia, because they're, he ties this into what's happening in Ukraine. And I, I'll try not to get off into, into that tangent, in that tangent. But China's in this odd position because they've had the one child policy for a long time and they've moved to this industrialized economy. And, and a lot of people have been moving into the cities. And what happens when you're on the farm, you're living out in the country, children are a source of cheap labor. So you have lots of kids. And that, that had been the, the pattern for, you know, eons. Once people get into the cities, children are, I think he referred to them as an expensive conversation piece. It, <laughs> that's, we, uh, we, that's a pleasant way to look at it. Right. It, 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 and so people just, they're, they're pure cost and they're, they're not a lot of a, uh, advantage to you economically. So, yeah, then people start having two or in the case of China, because of the imposed one China policy, that's become a habit. And so he thinks that the population in uh, China is basically going to collapse in a way that you've got all these older people. And we've talked about this phenomenon in the U.S. with Social Security. You know, when they, when they started Social Security, we had 40 people paying in for every one recipient. And now we're down to about you know, two and a half to three people paying in for every recipient. And you, you can just, I think that's a good firsthand example of how a demographic trend can weigh on a, a, a program or, or a country or a population like that. Well, that, that's happening in a big way in, in China, but they are dependent on foreign inputs for something like 90% of their agricultural products. So that's not saying they're, they're importing 90% of their food. It's like the fertilizer, the equipment, the, there, there's some part of their food supply that if they lost the foreign inputs, they would starve. They would not be able to feed the population. And so when you look, where he tied this in was if, if you look at Russia invading Ukraine, the sanctions that we put on Russia and actually the world put on Russia very quickly is making things difficult for Russia but they have energy, they, they have uh, navigational problems, they got huge expanses of land, but it's, it's not as fertile, so that's why they're wanting Ukraine and, and, and some other strategic reasons. But China, if they lost, if, if they had those kind of inputs restricted because they say invaded Taiwan, they wouldn't be able to feed their people pretty quickly. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's an interesting observation. I hadn't really, everybody looks at the military, you know, the, the body count, number of ships and planes and, and all that kind of stuff. But you could very quickly, you know, stifle China in a big, big way 
by, by cutting off fertilizer, energy, food inputs. And so it, it made me realize that China is a little more precariously positioned that, than I think I had previously thought and, and, and that most people would, would think. And, and then the other factor was that both China and Russia have moved to very authoritarian regimes. Under the globalization, the U.S. again patrolling the world's waterways, making it safe to move cargo and and inputs all around the world. That's that's beginning to wane. Like we're we're, we're not going to be continuing to do that uh, as much in the future, just you know from the cost and and whatnot. So as China and and Russia become more authoritarian, they're losing some of their your creativity, innovation, it, it really stifles. And you get, kind of get back to those centrally planned economies where you've got one person trying to make all the decisions for, for an entire country. It's not a particularly good model. And so uh, you're running all that forward 10 years from now, if, if his predictions were, were true, and obviously they're, they're a little bit on the extreme end, you could be very you could look at any number of situations where China collapses on itself, uh, dramatically weakens, or you know, becomes even potentially irrelevant. You know, the same with Russia, if they if they have um, if they stack up lots of deaths and and drag out the the conflict in Ukraine, or try to to push that even further. And I, I can't like go into every point that he was, he was talking about here that makes this so interesting. And, and that's why I would encourage people to, to get the book. But where this all came back for me and for my clients and for investments is he was talking about how the U.S. still remains uniquely positioned in that if we had to become isolated and, and independent, we've got energy, we've got food, we've got uh, navigable land and waterways, we've got a a little bit of a population problem, but uh, probably immigration and, and things like that could could solve that very quickly. And then the the turn that he made was he said, all of this manufacturing and export that we've done to China, he says, Mexico has become more competitive labor cost wise, and they're they're better trained and educated. The Chinese education system is very memorization based. It's very authoritarian, follow the rules. You don't get a lot of creative uh, innovation. Entrepreneurship is not particularly encouraged. And, and so you get a, a lot of stagnation in, in that kind of a situation. And so he says Mexican labor is better educated, trained, and less expensive today than Chinese labor. And so we could see a huge return to this hemisphere of manufacturing, more sophisticated manufacturing coming back to the U.S. We're starting to see this in some economic policies in coming out of Washington in the semiconductor space and technology, maybe uh, advanced bio, bio and pharma, pharmacological industries. And then, you know, of course, Canada, Canada to the north. And, and one of the other countries that he, he thinks is very well-positioned is, is Argentina. So in this hemisphere, if this globalization wanes and if countries like China and Russia collapse or, or diminish dramatically, we could see a huge renaissance in certain industries and sectors and self-reliance 
here in this country, combined with, you know, we have good relationships with Canada and there's, there's certainly some issues <laughs> as you saw in, in your uh, hot pursuit, we've got drug issues and the cartels uh, with Mexico. Uh, he said things would be a lot better if Americans didn't like cocaine so much. But um, anyway, I, I, I was looking at this and I said, you know, this is, I've never heard this perspective, this well thought out. Uh, you always hear the problems and, and what's wrong with the U.S. or we've shipped all this stuff overseas. Well, over the next 10, 15, you know, we're, we're talking long time periods here, but there could be a, a huge investment opportunity. This may be a position to say, where's the best place for my portfolio? What, what things do I want to invest in? Where are the opportunities here at home? And I'm actually even rethinking how much international exposure that I would want to have in a long-term portfolio if some of these things actually begin to, to, to materialize. So that was, that was kind of where I brought it home and, and, and rethinking investment strategy, long-term, you know, what, what's going to be the, the direction that things head. And, um, but definitely at the end of the day, if you want a really interesting insight into industrial development, the pace that it happened in the West happened over decades or centuries. The pace that it has happened in these new countries has been in, you know, less than like a decade or, or two. And, and so it's, it's happening so much faster. The, the boom is faster and then the bust is, is going to be just as fast. So I, I found it intriguing and would really encourage everybody to check it out. Fascinating. That is the end of the world is just the beginning. And again, we will link to that as well in the description of today's show. So lots of good resources to point you toward to get your uh, your new year off to maybe a good start with some new podcasts to check out and a new book to read. And uh, appreciate you pointing us in the direction of those neat tools, Brian. And um, does this tie in at all, like reading that? Does that change, maybe not change your perspective, but does that add some light and some flavor into our second topic of the day and, and talking about ESG investments and that sort of thing. Well, well clearly listening to Make the Dough Rise should be at the top of your podcast well, list. Yes, they're, are, they're already doing that. <laughs> they're already off to a good start there. Right. Yeah, so ESG, we talked a little bit about uh, on the Politically Incorrect Guide to Investing. This may be a somewhat redundant of that, but I really wanted to bring it back up because last year was an interesting year as far as market performance, because stocks were down, bonds were down, international stocks were just across the board, everything was down except for one specific industry. And that was energy. Now, energy had been on a several year decline and, and had not been a great place to be. But you had a lot of those you know, big names in energy up 60, 70, 80, 90% last year. And the sector as a whole was, was up about 50, 60%. So if you were going to make money last year, you really had to had uh, an exposure to energy. Now, I, I don't have a huge exposure to it, but it is in a lot of the, you know, the broad indexes and things like that. So there, there is some of that. But what has happened is, and just to recap, the ESG investing is really about what they call a double or triple bottom line investing. Uh, you're looking at not just shareholders as your primary, you know, you're supposed to do best by your shareholders. Like that's the definition of a fiduciary duty. 
And so you should pursue the decisions and policies and products and manufacturing infrastructure, whatever it is, products that, that are going to produce the most profit for your shareholders. That, that is the fundamental idea of, of capitalism and, and, and shareholder investing. ESG says, well, you know, uh, the environment, society at large, governance and, and, and how you, you conduct yourself and maybe things like uh, human rights and community welfare, gender equality, equal rights for everybody, as well as you know, the environmental, clean air, clean energy, conservation type topics. They've tried to, to weave all that into a metric to say, who are, who are the socially responsible companies that are not only helping their shareholders, but they've, they've expanded it to include stakeholders. And that's an interesting word because they're arguing that a stakeholder is someone who, you know, in the community, in the state or the country at large, are, are you being a good corporate citizen? And the problem is so much of this has become politicized and the climate issue, all for clean water and air. And I mean, I, I would love if we had just this miraculous, perfect environment and abundant, cheap energy and kumbaya and everything was, was fantastic. But they've so villainized certain sectors you know, energy and oil, a lot of these endowments, uh, big foundations, pension funds, they, they were excluding energy on a, on, on a ideological basis, not on an investment basis. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see if all of a sudden there's a reckoning between these people that I feel have been ideologically captured in their uh, ESG philosophies and they've they've missed out on making money which is which was their primary responsibility if you're a pension holder or, or if you're a beneficiary of a pension that has now had significant negative returns because the, the fund managers weren't investing in energy because again of an ideal, ideological reason your your pension's potentially at jeopardy if you're managing an endowment for a university or a foundation well, you're dependent on the grants and the, the, the proceeds from your, your portfolio to make your university or your foundation's mission happen. And, and so as board members and donors and, and people come to evaluate last year's return, I'll be curious to see what the take on, on ESG, if that takes a turn this year uh, from this panacea to maybe more of a reality of, you know, is, is, is going this route really generating the returns that we need? And um, I, I don't want to get bogged down into the, which of the renewable energies are viable and cost effective. And, you know, there's nuclear, there, there, there's all kinds of discussion around those topics. But the U.S. has been the one country that's reduced greenhouse emissions by developing a cleaner fuel source in natural gas. Natural gas burns a whole lot cleaner than, than coal and, and wood. And you know, what we're seeing right now happening in Europe where the Nord, Nord Stream pipeline got cut off, this kind of goes back to my issue with Russia that I was talking about. As their gas supply has been cut off, they've had to go back to coal and wood and their carbon output is far worse because these renewables that they're pushing for, 
they're not really viable. They're not as reliable. Uh, you, you've got battery issues. You've got to strip mine the entire Congo for cobalt. You know, there, there's two sides to this equation. And I, I don't think it's being fully looked at. So um, not, not to get too much on a tangent on, on, on the, the clean energy topic, but investing in companies that are producing cleaner burning, uh, having breakthroughs in uh, natural gas exploration, even nuclear, if that's not on the table, that, that's a great source of, of carbon-free energy. They do get a, what is it, plutonium? That's the leftover for, from nuclear waste that, the, that you can make the bombs with. Yeah, that sounds so, right. So it, yeah, anyway, it's, it's... That's what Back to the Future taught me. It was the, the plutonium. The, pl the plutonium. That, <laughs> that Doc was after, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so anyway... Um, so, so there's this whole idea of ESG, and, and it's it's a fairly arbitrary scoring system. And I, I've just questioned the some of the motives of of who's actually doing the scoring and putting it together. But then the the other thing that has happened is I've had not a lot, but a couple of people say, "Hey, you know what? Why don't we have any ESG investments in our portfolio?" I said, "Great question." And the reality is, is how who's going to make the score? Who's going to evaluate, you know, which companies are high ESG scores and, and low ESG scores? One of the things I, I looked at, and did, did we talk about uh, Hormel and Tesla the last time we, we covered mm. this? Does that ring a bell? It doesn't ring a bell. Okay, well, then I'll, I'll, the I'll tell you The Hormel doesn't it. for some reason. Okay, so, so I, was, I was looking at ESG scores, and I, you would think that Tesla, you know, being the renewable energy and solar and he's made the electric car cool and all that stuff tesla should be the poster child of you know high esg scores then on the flip side you, you know i grew up in southern minnesota in the town where spam was invented okay gotcha yeah yeah and and my dad worked with hormel so i, I know that company really well and it's actually a very well-run company you know they're they're not a huge polluter but at the same time you know they've got tons and tons of pork and poultry produced every single day. And so if you just stand back and look at it, you think, well, let's see this old manufacturing, you know, industrial agriculture, food company, even, even well run, surely that would have a lower score than something like Tesla. So I looked it up and, and the year I looked it up was Hormel actually had a higher ESG score than Tesla. I was like, that's, that's odd. How, how is that possible? And the, the scores got updated a little bit. And so the, the last time I checked, Hormel had an ESG score of 28.7 and Tesla had a 30.8. And oh, wow. Hormel was tagged as a medium risk, uh, which at least they're doing better than Monsanto that doesn't even have an ESG score. And then Tesla was ranked high risk and significant controversy level. Wow. Over spam, the wrong kind of spam. <laughs> right, right. And so I said, well, what is going on here? And, and so is this like a, Elon has obviously become a somewhat of a political, they've politicized the, the whole thing now because he's, he's bought Twitter and he's got more, seems to have more conservative views. Uh, Hormel is actually an interesting company because the founder had put half of the stock into a foundation. And so over the years, they've given hundreds of millions of dollars to the community and uh, done a lot of improvements and, and created recreational facilities and parks. And you know, they've just done a lot of great stuff in, in the community. They've done a lot for human rights and equal 
benefits for you know for different uh, the groups, and and so I just thought you know this is really odd though that um, that these companies have these similar scores, but you know Tesla gets this high risk rating and and uh, Hormel doesn't. So then that that led me to look at what's actually in an ESG fund because you would want good you know human rights and you don't want countries that are exploiting people and whatever your cause is it would be nice to to be able to help that well wall street's a marketing machine like if you want to buy something man they'll package it up and and sell it to you and so they created these algorithms to filter out companies for whatever the the algorithm was was sorting out for it, it it's not particularly clear to me what that even was and so I, I took a look at two funds, and one was VOO, which is a Vanguard, you know, like a you know, broad market S and P five hundred fund with no ESG tag. Then they created a new fund called ESGU, is is the ticker symbol, and it, it's one of the most popular ESG funds out there. And if you look at the top ten holdings, nine out of ten are the exact same stocks oh wow berkshire hathaway and johnson and johnson were the only but apple microsoft amazon facebook alphabet tesla nvidia jp morgan all those were in the top 10 and if you even got further down a lot of these even have energy companies in them because they're you know maybe the you know bp's got a good pr program about you know beyond petroleum remember they were going to be beyond petroleum for a while so, so maybe they're trying to look at it and, and find some justification. But at the end of the day, you are getting the same basic holdings. And for a low-cost S&P 500 index fund, you, you might pay five or 10 basis points, you know, like five, five to 10 one-hundredths of a percent. So practically nothing. Well, they slap the ESG label on there and they add 10, 20, 30, 40 basis points to that. So you can literally be paying 10 times as much for an ESG fund that at the end of the day has the same darn stuff that your, your basic S&P 500 index fund has. So that's, that's where I kind of became a cynic and said, maybe don't jump on this bandwagon. Maybe don't take Wall Street at face value of, of really giving you uh, environmental sustainability and governance companies. I, I think you know, the the burden's going to fall back on us to to actually do the research ourselves. Wow, amazing to uh, see the breakdown of that, and and especially put it in context with some of the things you were talking about in the book a little bit. All these global implications, what they mean for the future, and uh, just interesting to absorb it all and and kind of wonder how this is going to play out. And but you make some very compelling arguments, Brian, for why you got to really think through what's getting put in your portfolio and and why you can't just follow the herd or why you can't just pick XYZ fund, throw it in there and all's going to be okay. Because this last year was a perfect example of just how far the disparity can be between investments and between strategies. Just to go back and add one layer to this and, and tie it up with what I was talking about with China earlier, you know, a lot of these companies that wave their you know social justice banner in the U.S., Nike and Target and Walmart and some of those, uh, they're very mum on on what's happening in China with the Uyghurs and uh, Xinjiang, which is the, the I guess the province where they, they've got the most, I guess what I would call slave labor or, or uh, you know, certainly not OSHA approved work conditions for, for a lot of their people. 
and and when H and M, you're you're familiar with H and M. I've got three young, three teenage girls. So yeah, I know yeah. What, well, I've I've seen my wife shopping there a couple times over the years. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like a low cost, but still somewhat fashionable kind of clothing stuff, store. Yeah, you, you you see them all on the big cities. These huge boxes. Well, they they made some comments against China. And they got just banished from the Chinese market. So all these companies are, are somewhat duplicitous about, you know, they, over here, they, they wave their social justice banner. Uh, but then in China, they're very mum on, you know, what's actually happening over there. And so um, H&M saw firsthand what happens when you just, when you speak up and they basically shut them out of the, the Chinese market and probably made it more difficult to procure their products. Wow. As so, always, money talks, doesn't it? That's right. Well, so let me let me uh, just 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 to wrap this up. I'll give you a couple thoughts on you know if you're really invested in doing well, doing good, you want environmental, uh, good social and governance things. Every dollar you spend is a vote, and so you should adjust your purchasing habits first. And so yeah, we've, we were just coming off the the big get together in Davos where everybody was. Talking about the oil, oh, Al Gore was all revved up about that. We're boiling the oceans and we've got these rain bombs and, and you know, all the atmospheric rivers, whatever the heck the, the new scare tactic is. Meanwhile, he's bought an oceanfront, $9 million oceanfront piece of property in California and flies around on his big jet. And you know, the, the performative paradox there is, is uh, not lost on me. And ironically, uh, I think someone said that he earns about $2 million a month from his venture fund in, into uh, clean energy type investments. And, um, you know, I, I just questioned the, the authenticity of, of, of what some of these people are, what, what their actions say compared to what they're, what's coming out of their mouths. But if you're concerned about it, you vote with your dollars and you have control of your portfolio. So go do the research, go, go look up. Hormel's ESG score. Go look up Tesla. See what they're saying about it. Read some headlines. And, and so that, that's going to take an effort on your part. But at this point, I don't think there's a blanket solution to this. And um, it, it, it's going to become a matter of you voting with your dollars at the, at the checkout counter and where you actually put your, your portfolio. And, you know, the, the, the local if we go back to a more localized manufacturing or, or let's say regional manufacturing distribution uh, in this hemisphere, then if you went to a more local, you know, you can, you can buy, you go to farmer's market, you can, I guess eggs are incredibly hard to come by right now for some reason, but I know plenty of people that have chickens. I can get eggs all day long where I'm at. And having a more local food source is probably better than having something that's organic, but you know, they flew it in from Chile to you know, to make it to get you some raspberries in the middle of winter, you have to go back to eating more more seasonal. There's lots of things that you can do that that are going to have an impact on these. And then the um, there there are some actual social venture funds. So if you truly want to do this triple bottom line investing, a popular one that I know of is called the Acumen Fund, and and they they do all kinds of innovative investments to get capital into you know truly underserved uh, communities. They come up with innovative solutions to, to bring you know, technologies and, and economic development to, to truly underserved third world environments. So you, you could look at things like that. And then um, on a local basis, some of your municipalities and states 
as they're issuing municipal bonds for projects, those would be actually be great things where you can see firsthand what are they doing with the money, who's in charge of this. And, and so I think that I can tie these two topics back together and say, if we're moving away from globalization over the coming year, years, and maybe going back to the more regional and, and local uh, focus, hey, here's a great opportunity for you to, to do just that. Wonderful. Well, great, uh, again, outline of all of that, Brian. Thanks for the perspective. And it's a new year, lots of new things to be thinking about this year. And if you want to get the new year off to a great start and get a handle of how you can prioritize your financial goals, you're needing a plan perhaps uh, that tells you where and how to save, or if you just want help with investment management or any uh, combination of those things that help you lead to and through retirement, don't hesitate to reach out and tap into the knowledge of Brian Doe and his 20-plus years of experience through the ups and downs of the market. He is a certified financial planner, has that certification, which is the standard of excellence in financial planning. In fact, CFP professionals, if you didn't know, they meet rigorous education, training, and ethical standards as well and are committed to serving their clients' best interests today to prepare you for a more secure tomorrow. So if you want to get in touch with Brian, here are the best ways to do it. One is to call for a free 15-minute complimentary review with Brian, see if you can get some clarity around those financial goals. You can call 706-451-9800, 706-451-9800, or of course, go online to livingworth.com. That's livingworth.com, and just click on book a call, and you can set up your visit that way as well. Brian, thanks for all the help this week. Really enjoyed it, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds great. I'll look forward to hearing what everybody thinks about the uh, the books and podcasts if they take it in. Would yeah, love to hear yeah. any perspectives on it. Look forward to checking those out. Uh, again, we'll link to all those resources we talked about on today's show in the description, so check that out, and we'll see you next time right back here on Make the Dough Rise. Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website. Or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.